Good morning, everyone. We're going to begin. Great. Well, first of all, I just have to say a hearty thank you to all of you that got up so early this morning to be with us. I know when I set my alarm last night, I thought, I may turn a little bit more. is this for real? Um, it's early, but thank you so much. My name is Melody Barnes, and I am the chair of the Aspen Forum for Community Solutions. And I am joined this morning by a wonderful group of people, and we want to tell you more about the subject of reconnecting youth, and then engage in a conversation with you all. So we'll give you a chance to have the caffeine take effect, and then we'll look forward to engaging with you. But I want to tell you a little bit more about the wonderful men who are joining me up here this morning. Um, I'll start and go around. First, we have Norm Rice, who I'm sure many of you all know. Um, Norm most recently was the president and CEO of the Seattle Area Foundation. And he, before that, as you know, was a multi-term mayor of the great city of Seattle. And as we like to say, Norm has earned his retirement. Um, and he just recently retired but has done so much. He was also, as we'll discuss, a member of the White House Council for Community Solutions, for which I thank him deeply. And next to him, we have Xavier Jennings. Xavier, um, who you'll learn more about in a moment, um, currently serves as a program specialist at the Mile High Youth Corps, which is a youth build program. And he'll tell you more about his story and his work at Mile High in just a few moments. Next to him, we have Ken Thompson, who is, has become a great friend over the last couple of years. He's a senior program officer at the Gates Foundation and specifically focuses on their Pacific Northwest program. And then next to Ken, um, actually former colleagues at Gates before I managed to pull um, Steve <laughs> away, we have Steve Patrick, who's the executive director of the Aspen Forum for Community Solutions. So I really thank them for joining us here this morning. What I'll do is give you a very, very brief sense of context and the work of the Aspen Forum, how it came to be, and that'll set up the conversation that we'll have this morning. I, uh, in a past life, served as the director of the Domestic Policy Council in the White House. And during that time, we established the White House Council for Community Solutions. As I mentioned, Norm was a wonderful member of that council. There were 26 members, uh, including business leaders, uh, those from philanthropy, from the NGO community, and others really cutting across sectors because the charge that we gave that council was to think about what's going on in local communities as local communities are driving change. Because we were seeing so much success happening on the ground. And when I worked for President Obama, he would say consistently, the best ideas are being formed outside of Washington, DC. So we wanted to take that idea and interrogate it. As we did, the council decided very smartly, not just to focus on this issue in the abstract, but to very specifically look at a challenge facing our country and that of, and at the time we were using the language disconnected youth. We changed that language ultimately because of the conversations we started having with young people, 16 to 24 years old, in some way disconnected from education, whether they were in the juvenile justice system or because of a challenge in the foster care system or because they hadn't finished high school or had finished with a GED but weren't attached to a post-secondary credential program or not attached to the labor market. So we wanted to focus specifically on the ways that local communities were addressing that challenge because it is such a profound one. When I talk about opportunity youth, I'm talking about about 7 million young people. And that's an undercount. We really believe that there are significantly more young people who fall in the category that I just discussed. And it's not only a moral issue, it's also an economic issue for us because we know that we are losing immense talent connectivity to civil society when those young people are not a part of their local communities and not contributing to the country. And in fact, in 2011, that was estimated about $252 billion loss just in the year 2011. And over the lifetime of those young people, if you think about wages that are being lost, if you think about tax revenue being lost, if you think about challenges to the juvenile justice system or to the healthcare system, the list goes on, over the lifetime of the group in 2011 alone, we're talking about about $4.75 trillion. So moral challenge, economic challenge, what are local communities doing about it? And we found significant things are happening. And, we, and I hope you will walk out of here this morning with a sense of hope 
based on what we're talking about and what the council identified and later what we started to do at the Aspen Institute because we also determined we needed an outside home, some entity that was going to push from the outside as we also worked on these issues on the federal, state, and local level. So we're here this morning to talk to you about this work, to tell you some of the success stories. And I want to start by turning to Xavier, because I've just given you a sense of the numbers and statistics. But Xavier is a former opportunity youth, um, someone who is heavily engaged in his community and doing wonderful things. And I'd like to just start out by having Xavier tell you a little bit more about his story. Xavier. Okay. Um, so my name is Xavier Jennings, and I'm from Denver, Colorado. Um, I sort of have a non-traditional um, path to get um, to the point in my life where I'm at now, um, where um, I dropped out of high school. Um, I faced many different barriers and different challenges growing up. Um, I, I grew up in a, a low-income um, household with my grandmother. Um, she was in public housing. Um, she was she was in her later days and she was um, sick, so um, I was helping to um, take care of her as well as trying to finish school. Um, and at the same time, the only income we had coming in was her Social Security, um, her Social Security checks, um, and we had we had got booted off uh, food stamps because she um, she wasn't health wise at a place where she was able to make her appointments and and reapply for the food stamps and stuff. So there was many different barriers with that. So. Um, I was faced with a dilemma with um, trying to um, provide and just kind of, I remember when I first realized that I was poor. I mean, I've always grew up poor, but when I first realized when, when I was in high school, when I would come home and there would be nothing in the refrigerator to eat. Um, so when, at that point, I remember telling myself, like, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do what I can to get me and my grandma or my family out of these situations. Um, so I, I, I tried my hardest to continue to go to school. At the same time, I was applying for um, jobs and stuff. I was only 16, 17 years old. So a lot of the jobs that I was applying to, they, they wanted you to have a high school diploma or they wanted you to have the experience. So I wasn't having any, any luck. And, and the community that I grew up in, there was, um, there was a heavy influence on, on um, the street life. So... Um, there was easy access to drugs, guns, just kind of um, that aspect. So um, I made a decision to begin to sell drugs and um, just I mean, what was temporarily nickel and diamond just so I can have something to eat. Um, and that turned into really being able to just bring food home and, um, and essentially help my grandma out a little bit. Um, unfortunately, that turned into me um, getting... Um, caught up with the law a few times. Um, in fact, I had got arrested three times within a three-month span. Um, and then the last time that I got arrested, I was just kind of like, this isn't the life that I want to live. And I remember making that promise, like, I want to um, get myself and my grandma out of those situations. So um, I just made it a point just to kind of stop that and try to um, put some, you know, put all the different things that I didn't want to be involved with. Like, I didn't want to sell drugs. I didn't want to be around the negative people who were um, in gangs and some of those things. So I began looking um, again, trying my butt off to apply for um, for jobs, as well as still trying to continue to go to school. Um, once the school found out that I had um, got arrested for drug related, they kicked me out. So um, it was just kind of it was kind of really at my downest moment. So um, I actually ran across this program um, called Maha Youth Corps, and it was the Youth Build program and what they did were, was um, it was a program where you were able to go get your GED as well as um, you can earn an income. It was a job. So uh, we were building um, affordable housing units. So we were learning the construction trade and all of that. So, um, so I had joined, and there was kind of this month-long period where you had to trial for your spot. So I wasn't all the way bought in. I was, again, at my lowest points, and I had built up a lot of frustration with um, – just kind of in general with the, the schools not trying to figure out what was going on with me. They were just um, quick to kick me out or, you know, I had built up a lot of frustration around um, being on probation and some of those things. So I kind of lost a lot of trust for just programs in general. So I wasn't all the way bought into the program when I first joined um, until there was, um, there was a turning point for me. And that was 
at this service project during the mental toughest um, period. And and the service project that we had to do, it was called the hand, uh, Volunteers of America's Handyman Project. And what we did was we went to senior citizens' homes and we did yard work. Um, a lot of these senior citizens were older and they were physically unable to do their yards. And these were senior citizens who took a lot of pride with having the greenest yard and, and, and you know on the block. So, um, so during the orientation phase, we were still was about um, 10 of us um, young people and we were in our street clothes. So again, you can imagine how we looked. We had baggy clothes on, we, you know, some uh, hats on backwards and all that. And one of the first things that we had to do when we got to one of the homes was walk up to the um, house and knock on the door and just ask what they wanted to be done. And you can imagine a, a lot of <laughs> 10 young, young men, both Latino and black, looking like thugs walking up to your door. You can imagine what's going through this old lady's um, mind. So, <laughs> but she, um, so we knocked on the door, and you can tell she was really timid. She looked through the, through the window, and she, um, she really didn't acknowledge any of us. And, and we were there just for the work. I was really there for the paycheck at first. So I was just like, okay, let's get this let's get our tools and let's get, our, get to work. So she ended up talking to um, our staff, who was an older white gentleman. Um, so she, she really acknowledged him. But um, right then I just kind of seen, like, she's probably used to hearing about young people, um, you know, being a negative influence. You know, she's probably used to seeing on the news that, hey, we're robbing, we're killing each other, we're kind of um, involved with the law a lot. So midway through, and this is probably one of the worst yards that we had um, done that whole day. This was the last one. It just so happened that it was the hardest one. So we had to do, uh, we had to lawn more, and there was just a whole bunch of, she had a huge tree on the back that we had to trim and do a lot of work with and raking leaves and stuff. So we did that, and about midway through, um, this same older woman who didn't really acknowledge us young people um, at first, she came out, um, out her back door with a, a sheet of cookies in her hand and like tears flowing down her eyes and uh, she began to hug us and um, you could really tell that she opened up and uh, for me that was kind of an eye-opener because I was just like at that at that moment I feel like it was it was just kind of that easy up until that point I was so used to everybody else telling my story so uh, probation officers or judges saying hey you're just going to end up in jail or um, a lot of the teacher saying you're not going to make it and some of those things. So I was so used to those messages. But up until that point, I felt empowered to um, take control of my own life. And it was just that easy to break stereotypes. So I was like, um, I made that connection directly. And, um, and I still remember it to this day. But the, um, the lady, she, she came and gave me a hug. And um, my allergies started messing up. A few, tear, <laughs> few tears fell out of my eyes. But, but for me, that was just kind of eye-opener. And, and ever since then, I was just... Um, I got reconnected through service as well as kind of getting my education. Um, I was then able to graduate with honors at my youth corps, and I've been there ever since. And I've been promoted twice, um, and I'm I'm still looking forward to advancing in the agency. And I just really want to provide that that positive example because a a big myth um, from the the community that I grew up in, what we call the hood. So um, a big myth from the hood is that you don't make it out unless you um, are a basketball player, or a football player, or um, you pick up a microphone, or you just happen to get lucky. Um, and I just want to provide that example that there is ways at, out, and especially for people who made mistakes to reconnect and, and get their life back together. So. Xavier, first of all, thank you for sharing your story mm -hmm. and sharing it so honestly with all of us. And you are a tremendous person. And I think one of the points that, and we'll talk about this a little bit more through the panel, that comes from your story, and I, I intentionally didn't use the word exceptional because I think mm -hmm. what you know is that there are so many other young men and women who are like you who are thriving with another chance, and so many young mm -hmm. people, if given the chance, can follow a similar path. And our objective, working with you and others, is to provide those pathways for them. So we'll talk about that, and you all can learn a little bit more about the specifics of what Xavier is doing now. And I think a great transition will be to turn to Norm, um, because, as I said, Norm was on the White House Council, and I want him to talk about a little bit more about why you all thought about, why you all decided to focus on working with young men and women like Xavier, but then very quickly transition that or take that to what you were seeing and what you are seeing on the local level and, and what's happening there 
um, and what we need to support. Thank you. I don't think I ever want to follow Xavier. Uh, <laughs> but when, uh, when Mayor Jennings takes it off, I want to be there. <laughs> I, I was really very honored to be appointed to the White House Council, and uh, it was really a profound experience. Uh, what I think we notice early, sometimes uh, there's always a tendency to look at the federal government to solve the problems. But as we began to see all the people who were there to talk about what we needed to do, it goes back to all things being local rather than being national. That it really is a bottom-up approach and that if we look at it from a bottom-up approach, we're going to be more effective than if we're waiting for something to come down the sluice for us. And what we began to see and we began to recognize is that collective impact and the gathering and bringing together people to solve these complex problems are important. I left the, the, uh, the commission in some ways and really started looking at uh, how we really work from the bottom up. And I really began to see that really in all the things that we were talking about, that if we could begin to create that kind of local effort, it would really make a difference. So I joined the board of trustees of the Casey Family Programs, and uh, we really are operating in that whole sphere. One of the things with the Casey Family Program is we're recognizing that as you see uh, foster care and you see what's happening with the welfare system, if we're really talking about vulnerable children and families, most of them are coming from that whole area. And we really need to see how we can make change in this area. What I began to think of as a former mayor and now with, uh, with the foundation is how do you gather the resources at the local level to start to make change? And I think there is a whole lot of uh, good examples of what we're doing. Right now, with the Casey families, nationally there are about 510 children in foster care. That was in 2005. We've reduced that to uh, roughly uh, uh, 380,000. We've been seeing that if you can make an impact with vulnerable families and children early on, you can start to see the uh, differences that need to be made. But the more profound thing that really happened as we were working in this area is you can predict what's going to happen by zip codes. Mm -hmm. And the President uh, Obama had said, used that in a lot of his uh, discussions. If we look at the zip codes all across America, you can almost see the predictability of where we are and what we need to do. And we began to start to, the Casey Family Programs began to start looking at zip codes as making some things go. I, I'll just give you one example. In Raleigh, North Carolina, where Casey Family Programs recently helped build and host a community leadership, there were two zip codes, 27601, 27610. Similar population, similar racial and ethnic makeup. Kids in 601 were performing above average on test scores, and few, very few were on reduced lunch. Kids in 610 below average on test scores and close to 60% on free and reduced lunches. What does that say? It says that if we really take and drill down on the problem to the zip codes in the neighborhoods and refocus our resources in those areas, we can make profound change. But if we're waiting for someone to be the speaker or somehow the glorious leader to make a change, it's not going to ha happen. All politics is local. All action is local. And if you can begin to make that local effort, you're going to see where you can really make a difference. The story goes on and on. And one of the things we saw is that it, it really isn't necessarily a federal program, but it's the resolve and the commitment of foundations, social service agencies, uh, individuals being involved. I know that sounds corny and everybody says, come, let us get together and let us solve all this problem. But at the end of the day, it, more change can be made and more dollars can be leveraged at the local level by zip codes and the like that they can in some kind of national program. I always find that the more you go up, the more bureaucracy you have, the more responses of, 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 of data but not necessarily change. And I think that that's where we really are kind of looking at mm -hmm. is making sure that that can happen in a way that really makes a difference. So Casey Family Program, we're about $2.2 billion dollars. Uh, we really cover uh, almost all the whole country, and we're looking for partners. Mm -hmm.
and we're looking for people who can make, help us with the effort that we're making. When I look at Xavier, it makes me proud to know that I'm in the right space, <laughs> working for the right things, because I really think that at the end of the day, if we don't make the investment in our youth, and if we don't make the investment of, of reaching out a hand and pulling them along, we have nothing left. We have no legacy. We have no real opportunity. And there is a challenge and a strength and a, a resolve from these young young individuals that are stronger than any of us know. For you to get through where you've got to to get here today shows a resolve and the strength that we need. And I sometimes think we separate individuals who are coming through the social welfare system as somehow different, but really they are challenged, astute, knowledgeable, and able to really make change if there's a caring adult and a caring community that's willing to help in this journey. And that's where I think we can use and leverage philanthropic dollars, social service dollars, to make sure that you're giving that person that hand to move them along. I used an a, a old example. Sometimes when you reach in the dark, when you reach your hand out to pull somebody along, it's your own. And sometimes you've got to realize that that hand that you're extending is making that kind of change that really can make a difference. So I'm excited by where we are. I'm excited with the Casey uh, Family Program on Communities of Hope. I'm excited by where we are and what we're doing from this experience that started with Opportunity Youth from the White House and where we are today. We have more to do, but I think more and more communities recognize that in partnership they can make a difference. We can create communities of hope, and we can give everybody uh, that opportunity to move forward. So I'm looking forward to really being a part of that. I think we can mobilize communities. We can work with ex uh, partners that really make a difference. And I really think that there's a lot more that we can do for the Xavier's in the world and for the communities that we care about. Absolutely. Thank you, Norm. <clears throat> and I want to pick up, you were talking about those zip codes and intensive work in local communities, and turn to Ken. Um, because even though Ken is at the Gates Foundation, which is, as you all know, a global foundation, extensive reach, depth, um, tremendous resources, Ken, you are very, very specifically focused on the, on the Pacific Northwest. And you are, as Norm was saying, a partner with us um, at Aspen and a number of other organizations as we have been building this Opportunity Youth Incentive Fund to focus on the kinds of collaboratives Norm was talking about, business sector, philanthropic sector, NGOs, local governments, et cetera, and bringing them together to provide um, greater system change, not just support for great programs, but how do, linking, how do we link those programs to actually change systems? And I want you to talk about why you are funding and what you're funding, what you're seeing on the ground. Great. Thanks so much for that intro. And I was, <clears throat> you uh, gave me the perfect segue because I was sitting here thinking, like, how do I tell an interesting story at 8 o'clock in the morning about <laughs> systems change? <laughs> um, <clears throat> and I think, actually, it's in the way that the people in the community and primarily have been working in uh, Seattle and parts of South King County, the suburban communities just south of Seattle, um, with a group of players or across the community that included Norm from the start, to think differently about our community. Um, and we've all worked there a long time, and we do experience these different systems. Um, but it's been hard to kind of, it gets wonky, and you, people glaze over, you start to talk about systems change. And so what we actually had to do in our own community was come up with a kind of, uh, I don't know, a different lens on things. And what we tried to do in a way was create some cognitive dissonance with the, the good citizens of Seattle, I think, because Seattle's a fairly affluent place. There's lots of really great job opportunities. Um, a study had come out a few years before we started this project, sort of projecting for the Seattle area that 67% of the jobs there uh, would need some post-secondary credential um, in order to attain them. Um, and so what some of us who had been thinking about how really our local education system wasn't really working as well as it could for all the kids of the community looked at the actual numbers of kids who were getting post-secondary degrees in this area. It's a 750,000 people 
live in this corner of the county. It's a, it's a big number of people. And so there's about uh, 120,000 uh, students in the K-12 system. And what we found is that you were an eighth grader growing up in that community. Only 24% of you would get a post-secondary credential by age 26. And if you were a low-income student, or if you were African-American, a Pacific Islander, Native American, or Hispanic, 12% would get a post-secondary credential versus 67% of jobs, good paying jobs at a lot of great industry in the, in the Seattle area. So we kind of used this to say, look, something obviously isn't working. And these numbers had been the same for 30 years. And people had been trying. And people were doing great individual programs with 30 young people there or 120 people there or one elementary school would be hitting out of the ballpark. But the parts weren't coming together. And we, we use this moment to say, look, you know, we need to try something different because just something great there and there, it wasn't connecting together. And this is really the background behind what's now called collective impact. And I'm not going to try and explain collective impact in its totality here. Uh, there's a lot written about it. If you go to collectiveimpactforum.org, you can find out a lot of information. But it's a framework that a community can use to tackle any issue that's really tough and hasn't been solvable, even though people have been working on it for a long time. It really brings together lots of people in the community to, to do something better. Um, and I would say uh, the opportunity youth space here, uh, young adults who aren't connected to workforce or education is particularly true. The systems, now I'm going to talk about systems a little bit, that we have out there to support students just aren't connected to each other. So the high schools, the workforce system, if you're involved in the child welfare system or the juvenile justice system, I mean, just schools and the juvenile justice system are not working well together. Unfortunately, sometimes they're making the problem worse, even though that is not how anyone designed them or that's not what the people in them are trying to do. There's actually ways that, because we've kept these systems all separate from each other, they're not working very well together. So this is the kind of uh, thing. It's not easy work, but um, in Seattle and South King County, the project's called the Roadmap Project, roadmapproject.org, if you want to kind of look up. Um, the, the full breadth of the project, which starts from the earliest years, from birth all the way through uh, college completion in our case. We're also trying to tackle the opportunity youth question, and we've partnered with Aspen, and we brought together a collaborative of funders in the community to start to work on it, and a whole range of all of the kind of community organizations and institutions I mentioned are now coming together to say, wow, if there's one system where people don't talk to each other, it's, it's really not even a system around how to support disconnected young, young adults. Um, and I won't, I'll stop there, but I think it's not, there's a reason why the systems are not working well together, and it's not just because we created them from separate funding flows at the federal, state, and local level. It, the challenge, in the end, I would say, is that um, we have a problem of public will. People just have not said it's important for us to support these young adults as, as much as we could. And in fact, until we make that change in ourselves and in the people who work in the systems also supporting young adults, we're, we're, we may get halfway there on system changes, but there's a huge part of changing belief system that underlies this work. And I, I'm going to want to come back to that yeah. um, when we get to Q&A. But I'm going to turn now to my, my friend and partner here, Steve, to tell us a little bit more about how we've been tackling this problem at Aspen. Sure. <laughs> I'll try to be brief. There's a reason why everyone else has a clipped-on mic, but <laughs> Melody made sure I had one she could take away. <laughs> so brevity is not my strong suit, but I'm, I, I will do my best and try to get a little granular for you guys uh, about what is it that we're doing around really how do we make Xavier's experience for young people who – you know, let's let's say does definitely deserve a second chance. Probably had a limited first chance um, at an education and at at staying on a path to opportunity. How do we make that 
more common? How do we make that the rule and rather than the exception to the rule for these nearly 7 million young people who are out of school and out of work in our country right now that Melody talked about earlier? Um, so we have this effort underway at Aspen um, called the Opportunity Youth Incentive Fund. I want to recognize Monique Miles, who's right there in front, about to take <laughs> diligent notes, who, who leads, she's right here, who leads the, um, she doesn't want to wave, but that's an early morning thing, maybe. Uh, but she leads the Opportunity Youth Incentive Fund, and, and Melody and I both have the great privilege of working with Monique on this work. And, and what we did is, um, and this is kind of groundbreaking for the Aspen Institute, um, because it is really the first kind of multi-million dollar re-granting effort for the Institute. So it's kind of expanded our own business uh, uh, set of, um, of what we're able to do uh, at, at Aspen. And what we did was, as the White House Council wrapped up their work, they focused on these two things, like a laser, this disconnected youth, which they renamed Opportunity Youth, and then this thing called Collective Impact, which Ken talked about. How many of you have actually heard those two words together? Yeah, a handful of you, which is so refreshing because right now in, in the world of philanthropy and in, in the nonprofit sector, you ask how many of you have heard of Collective Impact and the entire room raises their hands. So it's, it's got momentum, which is great, but you worry about being you know, too buzz-like. Um, and then you actually, some of them you say, how many of you have heard of Collective Impact and are actually nauseous from hearing about it? And most of the foundation people go, oh, my God, I can't hear, hear any more about it. But it's a great framework for working across these systems, right? If the juvenile justice system is measuring whether a young person is staying in a particular part of town and never leaving it with an ankle bracelet, but the K-12 system wants that young person to do an internship two neighborhoods over, that would be a violation of their parole, it ain't working, right? These systems need to work more collaboratively. We all know there's a huge disconnect between, between K-12 and higher education. You know, if you enroll in post-secondary education and you're a person, a poor person of color, you have a less than 10% chance of achieving an associate degree if you enroll in community college. Less than 10%. So there have to be other ways that we can provide the kind of clear pathway with all systems working on the same common metrics, which is part of that collective impact language, which Ken mentioned, we launched a new resource for that, www.collectiveimpactforum.org. So check that out. It's also a product of our work at Aspen. Um, but the main thing we've done is taken those two things the White House Council got so excited about, this cross-system, cross-sector collective impact thing, this opportunity youth on a pathway thing, and we sort of said, okay, well, that's what the White House, you know, drank Kool-Aid on each of those. Let's mix the Kool-Aid um, and do a fund that actually builds successful stories from that cross-system work for the opportunity youth. Because you all remember from when you were kids that when you mix the Kool-Aid flavors, that's when it tasted best, right? Everybody remembers that? So, so we mix the, those Kool-Aids. Uh, uh, maybe I'm the only one who remembers that. I'm frightened this metaphor. Right, right. I had a big red mustache like, until about 10 minutes ago. I finally scrubbed it off from the Kool-Aid. So we put those together, and we worked with national philanthropy, like the Gates Foundation, like Casey Family Programs, to pull together essentially nearly, at this point, we will give away nearly $10 million over the next over the past year plus the next three years, so over four years, to fund communities that are willing to align those systems. Uh, the language of collective impact is that in a community, you need a backbone organization. You need someone who's not in one of those systems, even as just one person, who wakes up every morning saying, how am I going to connect these systems today? How am, how am I going to make them enablers and not barriers to these pathways? And, and I'll just say, trying to be really brief so we can, can go to Q&A, um, you know, what you heard from Xavier is an example of one of the pathways that works. He got connected to the Youth Build um, network. How many of you have heard of Youth Build in our country? Yeah, so looks like 17% of the room, which is pretty good. So Youth Build is a national network funded by the Department of Labor, a couple hundred million a year that goes out to 220-plus programs around the country. So find out if there's one in your own hometown and support it. Youth Build is now more connected to community colleges as a result of this work in local communities. Uh, youth Service and Conservation Corps, how many of you know about the youth corps that are kind of a throwback to the old CCC? Right, there's over 150 of them around the country. Um, and again, you can connect those 
they can't do it alone. Um, you know, it's about getting from what Ken described, isolated impact to aggregated impact by building out these pathways. So with the Opportunity Youth Incentive Fund in partnership with all the Casey uh, foundations, Mel's on the board of Marguerite Casey Foundation, so I have to recognize them as well. And <laughs> <coughs> turns out our biggest check came from Annie E. Casey, so I think I should probably recognize them as well. But with all of those resources, we're able to then fund that backbone role, that connecting role that connects the programs to the systems, that gets systems to actually change. As Ken said, systems need to change around this work. And ultimately, just to build on what Ken said, you know, this is about a, a cultural shift. This is about uh, a point of view where it, it doesn't take the actual real moment that the the elderly woman had with Xavier to change her own point of view about what young people can accomplish. And let's face it, sometimes this is about structural and institutional racism and other barriers like that that are very real for a lot of young people who have very limited choices and about scaling up the, the positive choices like the youth build pathway that Xavier got on in communities. So that's what we're funding with this new fund. Uh, in partnership with philanthropy, in partnership with individual donors, and in partnership with corporate funders. Our biggest, our biggest investor is J.P. Morgan Chase um, as we seek to kind of build on the community momentum that Norm articulated to really um, create those second chance opportunities. Great. Great, Steve. And just, I can't remember if between the two of us we said this. Right now, we're funding about 21 communities. Um, most of them have been development grants. Uh, giving them the past year as they are, as we analyze and they analyze the, uh, the pathways that they are developing to see if they're able to take that to the next level. Um, and we will very soon be announcing another round of implementation grants. We've, we've done two already. And these are urban, rural, and tribal communities um, that are involved in our program and bringing, bringing together this full set of, of collaborative partners to be able to do so. And I want you all now to think of the questions that you have for the panel. And as you do that, we'll have a wireless mic to go around. Please wait for the mic because we want to hear your question. I see a hand up already. We want to hear your question and have that recorded as we record the answers as well. So we'll have a mic um, start to come forward. But one thing I do want to do is just go back as the mic's coming forward, Ken, to have you just talk a little bit more about what you described in some ways is an intangible, but a very active actor in some of the challenge that we have in bringing these these programs and these systems together. Yeah. So it's um, a lot of work starting to happen in South Seattle and South King County around this work. And um, one really great, and kind of what we have been doing in this, in the roadmap project, this collective impact work, is we try to find uh, something to kind of wrap work around. And the state of Washington happened to pass a really great highly supportive um, new law that, that could be used to support uh, Opportunity Youth. And it was uh, freeing up some K-12 dollars to be used in a more flexible way for re-engaging students who had dropped out of the K-12 system. And so this was looking like a really great, wow, we could bring a lot of, because funding clearly is always a big, the guy from the Gates Foundation says the funding is a challenge, right? But really, the, lar the public funding system, our tax dollars are what's really the dollars out there that could solve really large-scale problems. Um, and so this was great. This was a great moment. And we saw a huge opportunity to bring nonprofits, K-12 systems, and higher ed institutions together to create new pathways, different pathways that would work better for uh, young adults who had dropped out of the particularly the K-12 system. But as people started to work together on these community-based organizations and school districts, unfortunately, what we're seeing happening, and even though the dollars can be used for re-engagement, for a GED, and for your college, and it can be used to pay for college, to get a college credential at the same time, the programs just keep focusing just on the GED. And there's nothing wrong with the GED, but what we know from all of the data is that, and what you heard from my example about the jobs that are available in the community is a post-secondary credential, I think doubles your lifetime earnings versus a high school credential. But the folks working in these programs kind of still have in their minds that, oh, if you had dropped out of high school, a GED might be what we can 
do for you. And it's just the kind of mind, we need to shift how we kind of understand what's the potential for people and not to kind of keep thinking in this same way that if high school didn't work for you at some point, education was completely um, not ever going to be your thing. It just, we have to think differently about this issue. Right. I know we've got um, hand, a mic right here, and then we'll come here, and we've got some other hands up as well. Hi, Rich Wager. Uh, Xavier, there, there's got to be people in your life that have very similar backgrounds uh, to you. Uh, nature, nurture, I mean, almost an identical life. Yet somehow you made a choice, a decision that changed your life, and your peers did not. Uh, do you have any insights on that? And I'd also like insights from the panel mm -hmm. on it. But, uh, Xavier, what are your thoughts? Um, so, so my thoughts to, to your question is I think some of it and a small percentage is around um, choices that the individuals make. But I think a lot of it is um, circumstances and um, let's just be honest, just kind of the systems, even if we're talking about like public school systems or um, the way that is set up for, um, you know, the incarceration rates and, and those sort of things. I think um, a big expectation for when we think about, so, so my community and, and just to kind of paint a picture, my community has um, where a lot of people are, you're surprised to live to, to 18 um, or either you're going to be killed or you're going to be in jail. That's just kind of like the norm and, and you're kind of aware of that, but I don't think there's enough opportunities out there. And I think the thing for me and, and one problem that we have at Maha Youth Corps because I'm still involved there is we can only bring in 35 per um, 35 um, young people into our program. And um, last year alone, I think we had over 300 applicants. Um, so, so I think there's a, a lack of opportunity for others to, um, you know, do positive things within the community. Like I said, there's a lot of easy access to all the negative things um, there, and, and a lot of the systems aren't, aren't adding up for um, a lot of young people to be successful. Um, so that's just a quick answer. Yeah. If I can add to that, I mean, I think there are a couple things. So, um, you know, one is that access to opportunity is pretty limited in a set of communities. It's that zip code thing that Norm was talking about. Um, and so when you have limited choice, you don't get to, to get on the path that Xavier talked about. We talk a lot about that, that these kinds of pathways need to happen by design and not by accident, these kinds of opportunities. Two, second thing about Xavier's experience that is a common theme is that it was the experience of service, of, of you know, being of value to others, being a part of something larger than oneself that, you know, a lot of, you know, I'll just say my privileged middle class kids get that all the time. But a lot of kids get labeled very early on as you are a hood, you're, you know, you're never going to, yeah, and, and they don't get that value, uh, that experience, that intrinsic motivator, that grit builder, that tenacity building thing of actually being of value to others. And once, so when the light went on for Xavier, he, he said it, he said uh, we were there for the paycheck, but then we experienced being, you know, helping others. Um, and so that can often be a trigger for young people who haven't had that experience. That can often be a turning point. Um, and it, you see it time and time again that service is part of these pathways to success. Um, and then, you know, I think um, there has to be a, a longer-term experience for young people who haven't had access to this kind of opportunity, may have been pushed out of school. You know, Xavier didn't say it, but when he was in high school, his grandmother got sick, and he couldn't go to school as much. So when he tried to go back in, they said something like, don't even bother, kid. Well, you know, with a grandmother who's sick as his parent to sort of advocate for him, Plus, let's, let's think about it. The, the, the continuum has to be about what would we all want as people. You know, we are sitting here in Aspen, Colorado, so just by definition we are privileged in some level. What would we all want for our own kids? And then how do we make that happen for all kids? Because these are all our kids. And that's got to be our philosophy. That's the cultural shift that we have to see happen with Ken. So there are some real examples of what works and what doesn't and how you hook kids into this. And, and, you know, this, the potential for scale is there, but it's only when the systems start resourcing this stuff differently, not spend new money, 
but spend their current revenue more wisely around these kinds of pathways, will we get there for all young people? Gold and then their hills, <laughs> but you've got, you got to mine it differently. And a lot of times people don't really uh, look at that, how to be creative with the funds that are available. Mm -hmm. It isn't a matter that there has to be a new federal program or state program sending money down the sluice. It's really about how effectively you're using the dollars and how effectively you're listening to the people who are wanting to be involved in this journey. Sometimes we spend a lot of time thinking we know what they want rather than listening to what they want and then building from what they believe in and how they make that system grow. And you can then, that's where the leverage in my mind even goes further. Absolutely. One of the things we're doing is looking at a, lot, a range of funding streams that already exist and thinking about how to align them. I know someone has the mic over here, and then we're going to come, this lovely woman in the white has had her hand up, um, so we'll come to her next and move around. Please. Good morning. Marsha Reisman, Miami, Florida. Um, Xavier, I'd like to have you in our group in Miami. <laughs> we need you. <laughs> we, I have uh, helped to found an organization called Casa Valentina, which houses foster youth as they age out of foster care. We are at the far end of the spectrum seeing all the problems there that weren't dealt with during the years of foster care, the, the 20 different schools, the 20 different foster homes. Uh, when we get to them, we test them immediately when they come in. We provide housing and we provide educational motivation. And what we're finding is it's very hard to motivate someone <clears throat> excuse me, who is uh, coming out of high school, trying to get a GED or a high school diploma and reading on a fourth grade level or on a math level of fourth grade. And so your point, Ken, about looking to the GED and changing the mindset of trying to go further than the GED is where we are because we recognize the GED is not going to help them with anything. We were fortunate to get a large grant that put the emphasis on jobs and are working with the Coral Gables Chamber who is now providing those jobs. So we're trying to give them some real hard skills. But the problem is that the foster care system is failing the kids in foster care. And we would like to be able to take some of that energy that we're putting into the hundred that come out every year and enter into post, you know, independent living, um, and be able to try to get that system to do more for those children so that we're not seeing such poor outcomes on the other end. Any thoughts about how to do that? I'll volunteer to talk after, um, but I do think, you know, this is where this multi-systems approach because Miami-Dade Community College is one of the best at grabbing uh, young people who have been on a nonlinear path, um, and they have all kinds of supportive pathways. Some of them are work first. So this is a great example where in, in the vision we have for collective impact, all of these systems are aligning at the highest level. But at the programmatic level, at least, you and Miami-Dade could do a lot together. Yep. And then they're out. Mm -hmm. So these kids who are reading, you can't raise the grade level. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We'll talk after. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Good morning. This was not my question, but I just want to um, reach out and say hi to Egbert because the Aspen community has the Buddy Program, which has over 500 youth who are paired with an adult mentor. And Egbert is a product of um, that program with Peter Wanders, who works for the Institute. And it's just amazing. I used to work with the Buddy Program to see um, how, the, how, the, how the youth are um, supported mm -hmm. by this adult in, in their life. So. Sounds like a great Hi. program. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, my question is about spirituality. And whether this can play a role, that like for, for the youth, is it finding that inner core in yourself that you are good? And is it through service? And it sounds like what Steve was saying, maybe it is through service, and maybe that's not a, um, you talk about, you know, it's not something you talk about. It's not religion. It's just finding, you can go through religion. And maybe it's through service that you find that you are good and you can do something different. And so I'd like to hear your, 
back to Rich's question, what changed your mind? And then what Steve was saying, it's on this collective system on changing our beliefs. I think you said, um, sorry, well, whatever. You said, our, our, as adults, changing our... I do. <laughs> it's changing our core belief system. Is that something spirituality that realizes that we're all connected? Is that something that um, would, would support the system change? Mm, that's a good question. Do you want to tackle the first part? Sure. I think it's a constant um, internal battle for young people, um, especially just because they're, they're used to um, throughout their, their experiences and, and different walks of life. Um, they're often received messages from society, just kind of, well, for me, and I'll, and I'll use me as an example, I was just kind of um, used to, um, I just kind of had this this anxiety around, like, hey, you're supposed to do this, you're supposed to do better, and once you kind of, you know, stumble or trip or something, it was kind of like you was frowned upon, and you were just kind of like, get, you know, get out the way sort of thing. Um, so I think for me it was a constant internal battle. It was just kind of like, you know, what was um, what was the right thing, what was the wrong thing. Sort of like, I don't know if you guys went to the session, I'm blanking out on his name, but the Adam 1, Adam 2 thing, you know. Um, yeah, you know, a lot of people didn't go. But um, um, but I think it was just, I mean, it's just kind of that, that battle between, you know, doing the right thing. And for me it was kind of like what I needed to do was kind of make sure that my, my grandma was cool and I was cool rather than kind of the school and what I was supposed to do. And I mean, later on, I came back to it. But I think in terms of your question in spirituality, I think it kind of depends. But I think they need to find um, something that um, empowers them or kind of they make that connection rather than somebody saying, you're supposed to do this or, you know, what's right and wrong. And, you know, because life's not black and white, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, just one other thing on the spirituality piece. I mean, it, you know, we all define that differently. But uh, a big motivator for me has always been this sort of quote from Gandhi that, that service to others is the only means to self-actualization. And if we're trying to ultimately achieve, you know, that doesn't work so well with the funders. Like, we're creating pathways to self-actualization. So we got to say pathways. We measure that, yeah, Steve. Right, right. <laughs> right, see, the Gates guy immediately shuts me down. I learned in early on, don't, don't bring up self-actualization in a meeting with Bill Gates. I learned this from you, Steve. <laughs> um, and, then, and then I brought up with the president of U.S. programs at Gates, I told him my favorite management consultant was Lao Tzu, the father of Taoism. And you could see why I left to go work at Aspen. Um, but, but the point is, you know, when Gandhi said service to others is the only means of self-actualization, that is sort of, that is what the experience of service does provide. It, it, and I think that is ultimately the end goal. I mean, for, for our report to the Gates Foundation, we'll talk about, you know, uh, labor market payoff and, and the number of post-secondary credentials that have labor market value. But, um, but I think there is a spiritual piece to this, and uh, I think actually others are better at describing it. So I'll just say. One of the things I, I, I Melody probably heard me say this so many times when we were in D.C., but there's a Chinese proverb that captures the spirituality in the sense that you're talking about. Go to the people learn from them, love them, start with what they know, build on what they have. But of the best leaders, when their task is accomplished and their work is done, the people will remark, we have done it ourselves. I think that's one of the things that sometimes we forget. We, we know the goal. We see where we need to go. But sometimes you've got to explain what you're doing in their terms, not our terms, not anyone else, but to build that kind of confidence. When people know that you've heard them, they respond so much differently than if we say, this is what you need, this is what we can do for you. It's got to be the, that connection that we're doing it together. Okay, hold right. on. I just have to say, that was from Lao Tzu, the father of Taoism. <laughs> so that's just crazy. So I should have gone to work with Norm. In the <laughs> no. <laughs> and I'm going to go. There's a gentleman in the green shirt in the back and then a woman with the black sweater. One thing I will quickly say connecting some of these points, you, many of you all may have heard of the Franklin Project, also housed at the Aspen Institute, fo focusing on national service. And we are working very closely with the leaders of that program, John Bridgeland, 
who is actually John, – John and I had the same job in two different White Houses. He worked for George W. Bush as his domestic policy advisor and Alan Casey and focusing on ensuring that there's a place for opportunity youth as we build out this big national service model. I'll also say if you go to the Youth Build website, there's a Council of Young Leaders for Youth Build, and they have put together their own kind of proclamation of what they need and want, as Norm was saying, and that includes very, very important – national service, being engaged and involved in their communities. It is part of what they want. Yeah. Sir. Thank you. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a funny that you mentioned that, Norm. I actually reposted this to my Facebook uh, uh, the other day. This is actually hanging in one of the, the session rooms uh, over in, uh, in uh, Coke uh, yeah. there. And uh, uh, let me make sure and read this uh, to, to do your point justice. A leader is best when people barely know that he exists, not so good when people obey and acclaim him. Worst when they despise him. Fail to honor the people, they fail to honor you. But of a good leader who talks little when his work is done, his aim fulfilled, they will all say, we did this ourselves. Uh, particularly resonated with, with me, uh, again, in the discussions uh, there around uh, tribal implications of this. And really appreciate the, the panelists, Melody's uh, uh, stressing of uh, inclusion of, of tribal nations in this conversation and the unique interests and needs of tribal communities. And I know we have a, a breadth of expertise there uh, that, that have dealt with these issues uh, on, on, a, on a, you know, historic basis. And, and so uh, when we're talking about uh, collective impact and, and systems change uh, in tribal communities, that, that notion gets really, really complex. And, and I find it uh, for folks like myself. I've, sorry, I forgot to introduce myself. My name is Bill Mendoza. Uh, I'm Oglala Lakota uh, uh, from uh, South Dakota originally, uh, but I currently uh, and have directed for the past three years the President's White House Initiative on American Indian Alaska Native Education. And so this issue of collective impact in education particularly gets at this uh, reality of governance challenges uh, when you're talking about three sovereigns working together uh, at the very minimum, and then you, you apply private to public philanthropic interests uh, and, and commitments in this area. Uh, one of the hardest things for me is, is in rooms like this, folks like this, uh, I'm a bit biased, obviously, phenotype, uh, draw, uh, everything uh, about the challenges face. But hearing from folks like yourself uh, about how workable collective impact is and systems changes in, in, in these communities, because off, too, all too often folks well-intentioned step into these conversations, just are over, overwhelmed and succumbed by those complexities. And we really need these people as thought uh, leaders in, in this work for this capacity building and this uh, really appreciate the question of spirituality just validating a lot of points or someone here I have a question but uh, just validating the, the points of spirituality that the system not reflecting those cultures from which they're trying to impact uh, tends to be at the core of these challenges whether you're talking about an underserved underrepresented population and in the case of tribal populations 1.5 million youth uh, nationwide that are often invisible. And so notions of building it and they will come do not speak to my communities, whether they're in the urban context or the extreme rural frontier context like Montana, Alaska. So uh, if you can find a question in there, help me out a little bit, Melody. I can find a quick short answer, although, <laughs> and Melody will make sure it's short. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, when you've, if you've seen one tribe, you've seen one tribe, right? And so I think um, it really is about, and I, I, I say this as a, I worked for five years as a tribal employee for San Juan Pueblo tribe now called Oke Owinge, which is their traditional name. So as a tribal employee, that I witnessed the silos um, in, the, in the systems there in ways that I think, um, you know, inspired me to think to work on silo busting. I also witnessed a sense of community that uh, transformed any kind of one role or one, um, one program. And so I think there's a, a sort of challenge sometimes in how bureaucracies get built. Um, especially uh, in the tribal context where those bureaucracies are not necessarily even originally designed by the tribes, right? Um, and then there's an opportunity, and that's, that's sort of the bottom line about the work we're trying to do. First, it's acknowledging the voice of young people and nothing about us without us. But second is being assets-based about, about the work, always building on the strengths and capacities and not labeling and fixing problems but actually helping elevate the kind of solutions that young people bring to the table themselves. 
Xavier brought that solution to the table when he um, helped clean up that yard and, and helped build low-income housing as a part of his own pathway. So I think there's a lot to learn from tribal communities. I think it's, it's got to be one by one that they themselves embrace more collaboration in the systems. And I am sorry, because we are running out of time. I've, I've tried to make this work in my head and said, well, we started a few minutes late. But I know that we, there was one more person that I promised could ask, if you can ask a quick question, and then I will just do a fire round with the group just in terms of what makes you hopeful at this moment, and then we'll close out. Please. Good morning. I'm Larissa Friesenhall. I work with Sojourners, and there's a growing movement, as you all know, to address mass incarceration. I wanted to ask the panel, um, as we see, and I work with a faith-based organization, so we're seeing that movement, especially in faith communities, which is great. Um, as coalitions and collaborations are beginning to crystallize, what would your recommendations be for us as we consider how opportunity youth and juvenile justice uh, fit um, into that movement? Thank you. Partner with the K-12 system. I mean, there's an incredible, unfortunate, awful pipeline between K-12 system policies around pushing students out. And, uh, you know, your state laws are all different in different places, but really, I'm, I don't have the exact data, but I think you could probably cut juvenile incarceration in half by having a, just a, more, a better agreed system between your truancy, your push out of school and school delinquency, and your juvenile justice system. I unabashedly hope you'll read this. One of the things that the Casey Family Programs decided to do was to recognize system change and embed uh, individuals in the cabinet, in the uh, tribes, and really building with them uh, a, a better delivery system. Until you begin to really walk in the issues, get involved, understand that system, you, that's the only way you're going to change it. And so we have been able to make systems change uh, by working in that. So we have people who are in the Justice Department, people at HUD, people who are, are uh, associated with the tribes. So people are actually seeing it, touching it, feeling it, and understanding it in a way to make the change that we need to deliver the services we have rather than talking about it. So, Norm? <laughs> um, yes, I am. Um, just <laughs> very quickly, in terms of what makes you feel hopeful, this is a big challenge but a big opportunity. What are you seeing? I think that people are beginning to recognize that change is bottom-up. And the more people can see it coming that way rather than top-down, the more you can change. I start to see different groups, whether it's small groups or large groups that are beginning to understand that, that they've got to do it themselves. Thank you. Xavier. Um, what makes me hopeful is that, uh, that there are, um, that there are a, a number of programs and stuff that's really kind of seeing some of the issues between um, second, you know, second chances for youth and um, all of that stuff. So I think what makes me hopeful is that I think young young people are kind of noticing that, you know, that they're able to be somebody and they're being able to move forward. So I'm talking directly from Denver, but um, I feel hopeful about, you know, that push. I, I'm hopeful because they're really, um, although the complete change will take some time. There really is low-hanging fruit in a bunch of places, and I've seen a couple of uh, quick policy changes make a huge difference in the numbers. And so uh, an example is there was a, an alternative high school in our state that was working with a lot of reconnecting students. They, in fact, looked at their discipline policies. They used a new trauma-informed practice lens that came out of the adverse childhood experiences work, if anyone has followed that. They cut their suspensions and expulsions in half in less than a year. So there, there's some great, the work's going to be hard, but there are some things out there that will make fast changes and huge difference in people's lives. Uh, three really quick things. One, uh, that we had a packed room at 7.30 in the morning for this session. That makes me hopeful. Uh, uh, two is, is really that this 
this moment around reconnecting pathways for opportunity youth has got more momentum. I've worked in the youth space for over 20 years. There's more momentum in our country right now for change. You know, everyone is recognizing that there are more African-American males locked up right now than enrolled in higher education in that age demographic, right? And so ending the school-to-prison pipeline is real. Um, there are market forces that are also changing that. Um, and then there's all this attention being paid to, you know, you've got companies like J.P. Morgan Chase, foundations like Rockefeller and others starting to work on the demand side where the jobs are and reverse engineering the pathways that we're all working on to get right to that job. And we know there's a $3 million, uh, 3 million, 3 million jobs that are open and vacant right now. And young people like Xavier and his, his friends can fill those jobs, and people are starting to build those pathways out. So I'm very hopeful about that. Great. Well, I know there are a number of questions we couldn't take, and there's much more we could discuss. So there's a part two. If you want to join us tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock for breakfast, um, Monique and Steve and I will be talking more about our work um, in the Lauder Room at Coke on, back on campus. And I want to thank you all for being here. I want to recognize Monique for helping us to organize this panel and for all of her tremendous, tremendous work. Hope you'll come and hear more from her tomorrow. And I particularly want to thank all of you, the panelists this morning, for joining us and for sharing your expertise and your stories. Thank you so much. <laughs>